Please turn with me to the book of Acts in the Pew Bible, page 1156. The focus for the sermon will be the verses 1 through 5, but I'd just like to read verses 1 through 11 because it all is closely tied together. And you can see from verses 1 through 11 that Luke kind of recaps how he, uh, what he said at the end of the gospel about the Lord Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And, um, and then we'll focus on the verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven." That's where we'll pause our reading, and we hope next Sunday to look at the other verses, 6 through 11, but this morning we'll focus on the verses 1 through 5, and then we'll sing in response Psalm 72. We'll sing about… Uh, Psalm 72 was about the king who reigns and causes uh, his people to flourish, and that King, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll sing the stanzas 4, 5, and 6. <clears throat> Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of us know that our Savior Jesus went back into heaven after His resurrection. It's something we confess virtually every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed, He ascended into heaven. But if someone were to ask you, what is Jesus doing in heaven right now, what would you say? What's He doing? Well, we know He's waiting. For one thing, He's waiting, just as we are, until His Father gives the command for Him to return, at which time Jesus will come back on the clouds of heaven. But the fact is, for nearly 2,000 years, Jesus has been waiting in heaven. 
what's he been doing all that time while he's waiting? Has he been resting? He's certainly earned such a rest. Or is he busy fellowshipping with the saints who have already died? Well, no doubt we know from other Scriptures that believers do interact with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are enjoying His presence and His company in some fashion. But is that all that the Lord Jesus is occupied with? I mean, if you think of His earthly ministry, we know that for His time on earth, during that official ministry, He was quite busy doing many things. He was preaching, He was teaching, He was healing, He was forming disciples, He was building up the, the apostles for what would come. What is Jesus then doing now since He's gone back into heaven? Well, to answer that question, Luke wrote for us a second book, the book of Acts. And in the opening scene of Acts, we see a transition underway. We see Jesus in the last days of His uh, time walking the earth with His disciples. We see Him preparing them for His absence, and not just prepping them for His absence from earth, but more importantly, preparing them for His soon-to-be presence in heaven as King. We see Jesus getting the apostles ready for a time when they will be the ones doing His work on the earth through the power of Jesus' Spirit. And so I proclaim to you this word of the ascended Lord, Jesus prepares His apostles for their mission. He prepares His apostles for their mission. We see here teachers in the making and witnesses in the making. Well, we know, to deal with some preliminary matters, we know it was Luke who wrote the book of Acts, right from the opening verse of Acts. He writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. This uh, Theophilus is a fellow we came across earlier in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, where Luke says that he took a great deal of care and did a lot of research in order to provide for this Theophilus a, an orderly account of the things, says Luke, which have been accomplished among us. That's a roundabout way of saying the things that the Son of God came down to the earth to do in His earthly ministry. That's what Luke wrote in his gospel account. Luke says it here in our text with a summary statement in my first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So, we know that Luke is writing to Theophilus here in the book of Acts, but who is Luke and who is Theophilus exactly? Well, truth is, we don't know a lot about each of them. We know Luke was a doctor, a physician. He was a man of considerable education. He probably was a Gentile. Probably he was converted to the Christian faith under the preaching of Paul. We know that eventually he became a traveling companion of Paul. 
Later in the book of Acts, you can hear Luke uh, write of Paul's travels, and he uses the word we. We went there. We did this. We did that. So Luke is a companion of Paul at certain points in his ministry. But really, that's about all we know about Luke. He wrote two of the largest books in the New Testament, and we don't know much more than that. We know even less about Theophilus. Probably, he also was a Gentile convert, perhaps a man of of standing in, in the community of which Luke was familiar, and he might even have been some hypothesized, he might have been the patron that would be the person who pays Luke's expenses for the time of research and writing these two books. Well, whatever the case about the two men involved, what we do know for certain is that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to set down an orderly account of the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is part one of that account. The book of Acts is part two. To say it a little bit differently, brothers and sisters, the book of Acts is the continuing story of the ongoing work of Jesus. Why don't you look at verse 1 again? Luke says that in his first book, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. The gospel of Luke then covered all that Jesus began to do and to teach, which clearly implies that Luke's second book is going to deal with all that Jesus continued to do and to teach after He had ascended into heaven. So, here already is the basic answer to the question that I asked at the start of this sermon, what is Jesus doing now in heaven? He's continuing His work of doing and teaching. He's continuing to act and He's continuing to instruct. So, brothers and sisters, you're We need to be really clear in our minds. Our Savior did not go up into heaven to take a long breather. He's there to carry on the same basic ministry that He had here on the earth, only now He conducts it from the advantage of the throne in heaven. He's no longer down here suffering. He's no longer carrying the burden of our sin, but He has a lot to do and to teach from the throne of glory. So, this second book of Luke's is not about the Acts of the Apostles. You know, that's the title in our Bibles, but the title there is not original to the book. It comes from the second century at best. But what Luke tells us himself is, this is the Acts of Jesus Christ through His Apostles. That makes all the difference. If you go to the very end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, the book of Acts ends suddenly. A lot of people are, are confused by that or questioning that. Luke has a very specific and orderly introduction, but in chapter 28, the book just ends, kind of like James. There's Paul. He's in jail. He's proclaiming the gospel. We don't know if he gets out of jail. Luke doesn't tell us. We don't know what happens to Paul. It's just a, a, an end of the, the book with Paul preaching the Word of Christ. And that is a message in itself. The ministry of the ascended Savior isn't dependent on a man. It just keeps going. 
even beyond the lifespan of the apostles, the gospel is going to go forth until the time is ripe for Jesus to come back on the clouds. So, as Luke starts out this uh, part two of the work of Jesus, book of Acts then, he goes back briefly to the time between Jesus' resurrection and His ascension, a time He had touched on in Luke 24. This is a time of transition. Jesus is transitioning, or He, he will soon transition, from earth to heaven. And it's a time of transition for the disciples just as well, disciples who before they, they actually laid eyes on the resurrected Savior, what were they? They were defeated men. They were defeated followers. They were in spiritual turmoil. They were in depression. They were in confusion. Well, in a matter of days, they become men who are strong in faith. They see the Lord Jesus. They know the reality that He's alive. They become men who have lost their fear of the authorities. They become leaders in what would soon be a renewed church. Massive changes are underway for these 11 men and for God's people. And look who's in the driver's seat of all this change. Luke recaps those, those interim days, starting in verse 2, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Who's giving commands? Jesus. Who chose the apostles? Jesus. It's Jesus coming to the apostles in those days, presenting Himself alive. It's Jesus appearing to them. It's Jesus speaking to them about the kingdom. It's all Jesus. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus drives the agenda. Jesus is doing the work. He's doing and He's teaching. And He does that in a very unique, special time something that's hinted at when Luke mentions it was a period of 40 days. 40 days. Jesus doesn't choose to spend 35 days or 42 days, but 40 days with His apostles. In the rest of Scripture, that number 40 comes up a lot. I think everyone knows that certain numbers have certain symbolic meaning in Scripture. The number seven, number of completeness. Number three, uh, also a, a form of completeness, but emphasizing wholeness. Well, number 40 is also a number loaded with significance. It seems to mean slightly different things in different contexts. You can think of the 40 years of the Israelites in the wilderness. You can think of the 40 days and nights that rain fell in the days of Noah. You can think of Moses who two times spent 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai in the cloud of God's glory, neither eating nor drinking, says the Bible. Think about that. But perhaps most significant to our text is that Jesus Himself had once spent 40 days 
doing something unique. At the very start of his earthly ministry, right after he had been baptized, the Holy Spirit ushered him into the wilderness, as Luke tells us, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and Jesus ate nothing during those days. So when you look at the the ministry of Christ on earth, you see bookends, 40 days at the start, 40 days at the end. The 40 days at the start, Christ was sifted. Christ was tempted and tested under great duress and and weakness in in the desert. Why was He sent out to undergo that? Well, it was preparation. Preparation for the hard work of obedience to all of God's commands for the rest of His ministry, the hard work of suffering the rejection of His people and of God, the hard work of going to death on a cross. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? The wrath of God pressing down upon Him so that sweat like drops of blood came out of Him. It was brutal work that He had in front of Him, and the the period of 40 days was preparation, the testing. But now, after having gone through all of His ministry on earth, having successfully completed all that humiliating task, and about to ascend to the glories of heaven, He takes His disciples through another 40-day period. Why? To prepare them for their task to prepare them for their mission. That idea of mission is hidden, you could say, or contained in the very title Luke gives to the disciples. He calls them here apostles. With Jesus are the eleven disciples. Judas is dead. And some other close followers are there. We'll learn about that later in chapter 1. But Luke calls the eleven the apostles. Actually, it was Jesus Himself who gave them this title when He first selected them to be His close followers in Luke 6. He called them apostles. What does that mean? Well, it means those who are sent out. The word disciple means one who learns, but an apostle is one who is sent out. Sent out then on a mission. That's implied. So, from the start of His earthly ministry, Jesus called to Himself twelve men, twelve followers, whom He would make ready to send out on a mission. And what is that mission? Well, Luke already told us in Luke 24, which we read, verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins, here it comes, here's the mission, that those things should be proclaimed in His name, the name of Christ, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You, apostles, are witnesses of these things says Jesus, Luke 24. So, the apostles, their mission was to be proclaimers, proclaimers to all the world, to Jew and Gentile alike, of all that Christ has done for sinful mankind so that sinners might hear and repent and be forgiven of their guilt. It's a pretty big mission, don't you think? 
How could 12 Jewish men, or 11 at the time, mostly untrained men of the working class, how could they even convince their fellow Jews about all that Jesus had accomplished for sinners when the Jewish people had just finished rejecting Jesus and crucifying Him? And what Gentile, a non-Jew, what Gentile would hear such a story, a story of a man despised by his own people, then put to death on a cross, only to rise from the dead in payment of the sins of all people? What Gentile would believe that? And how could 12 or 11 men possibly go out and reach all the nations of the world with this message. I mean, this is mission impossible, isn't it? It's physically impossible, and spiritually, it's about the longest shot you can think of. Tell me, brothers and sisters, if you were one of those 11 disciples hearing Jesus' command, proclaim this gospel to the world, starting in Jerusalem, what would you be thinking? This is why Jesus spends 40 days preparing the apostles for their mission. Here, in this preparation period, there is no devil tempting. There is no fasting. A decisive victory over Satan and sin has been achieved by the Lord Jesus. So, the disciples' mission is not to repeat the earthly ministry of Jesus. No, no, they're going to be His agents to tell the world about what He's done. That's the continuing work of the Lord Jesus from heaven. And so, He looks upon these 11 disciples, apostles, He looks upon them as teachers in the making. He's prepping them. They were students, but the students have to become teachers. Jesus will teach the world through their mouths. And so, this group of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, they've got to learn to become teachers and preachers and proclaimers of all of Jesus' work. And you know what? That's exactly what they become. This preparation period by the Lord Jesus, is a success. When you look through the rest of the book of Acts, you find the apostles doing exactly this. They're constantly teaching. They're constantly preaching. They're spreading the good news. Acts chapter 6, they say to the congregation, look, we can't continue serving at tables because we don't have enough time to preach. So we've got to get some deacons. Our job is to teach and to preach Jesus Christ and the kingdom, we are to witness to the world, free us up so we can do our witnessing work. For that's the other thing, the other aspect to their calling as apostles. They were called to teach, but they were also called to bear witness. Now, that word witness is not found in our text proper, I grant that, but it is very much in the context, and you have to see it for yourself. Can you turn with me back to Luke 24 for a moment? Because Luke 24 and Acts 1, they overlap 
and it's very much the same context at a certain point. So if you look at Luke 24, verse 48, or verse 47, let's say, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, you, you apostles, are witnesses of these things. And then it comes back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, again, just in the same context. Um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, what is all this talk about witness? Why not just stick with the verbs and the concepts around teaching, proclaiming, spreading, sharing, witness. And it doesn't just crop up once or twice. It, it crops up repeatedly already earlier in the Gospel of Luke, but increasingly in the book of Acts, the words witness, the words testify, the words testimony. When you hear those words, what do you think of? Well, the natural thing to think of is a court of law, right? That's where you have witnesses. That's where you have testimony brought forward. These are legal words. It points to the fact that in the larger context, in the bigger picture of God's relationship with the human race, there is a court case unfolding. That's not something we always have in the forefront of our mind, but it's very clear in Scripture. There's a court case unfolding, and God is the judge. God is judge of the whole human race, just as God is Savior of the human race. In order to save mankind, God sent His only begotten Son, we know this, to die a sinner's death as substitute. So that, in the words of John 3, 16, whoever believes in Him, in the Son, should not perish but have eternal life. But you need to believe. Everyone who hears needs to respond in faith in order to be saved. For if you don't respond in faith, only a couple of verses later, Jesus says, John 3, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Notice the word condemned. That's a legal declaration made in God's courtroom consigning such a person to everlasting punishment. We have to understand, brothers and sisters, that God is taking the world to court, and it's His courtroom. So, these apostles were chosen by Jesus to be first-hand eye and ear witnesses of all of Jesus' earthly ministry. They saw everything. They heard everything. They could give legal testimony in any human court and equally in God's court. They had to be first-hand witnesses. That will come up later in chapter 1. We hope to see that in a week or two. 
They're going to testify of the facts as they know them to all peoples, first to Jews, Samaritans, and eventually to Gentiles. From heaven, you see, God, through His Son Jesus, will employ the apostles to press His court case against the unbelieving world. Remember that the Lord Jesus will soon ascend to sit upon His throne. That's the throne of almighty power. And on that throne, or from that throne, He will be sent one day to come back. What's Jesus going to do when He comes back? You know it, Apostles' Creed. He's going to judge the living and the dead. There's going to be a court case coming to conclusion on the day Christ comes back. Again and again, the twelve and later Paul will testify all that they have seen Jesus say or do. They will testify on the street corners, in the synagogues, before councils and governors and kings, and even to prisoners in jail cells. They will testify, and those who accept their testimony and put their trust in the ascended Christ, they will be forgiven their sins and given eternal life. But those who reject their testimony... You can think of the times where Paul has to turn and wipe the dust off his feet as a declaration to them that they bring judgment on their own head. Those who reject their testimony make it clear that they are under, they stay under God's condemning judgment. The apostles, then, were constantly witnessing to the world about Jesus. And isn't that our calling still today? The apostles, when they heard the command of Jesus to, to testify to all nations, they knew they could not possibly personally do that work. They could not teach all the nations themselves. They could not bear witness to every community on earth. They were only 12 people. They needed to start this work in Jerusalem. They needed to train others who could then go further afield, and those people would need to train still others after them so that with more people involved, the work could be carried out to all the nations of the earth eventually. And isn't that what we see unfolding in the book of Acts? The twelve apostles, if you look at where they go and what they do, they actually stay pretty close to the city of Jerusalem. They are among the small believers, number of believers that remains in Jerusalem after the, the big persecution hits in Acts chapter 8. They stick around. According to what Luke tells us, it's the deacon Philip who takes the gospel to Samaria. It's Philip who tells the Ethiopian about how Jesus fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah. And it was later Paul and Barnabas who bear witness to Gentiles throughout Asia Minor and even into Europe. So the task of witnessing to the world, it started with those 11 apostles, later 12, and carries on to the church and her missionaries thereafter. So you and I are part of that. Now, you and I are not like the 11 apostles or the 12. We are not eyewitnesses of the work of Jesus. We didn't hear Jesus preach like the apostles did. So they are, 
they are eyewitnesses in a unique sense. They are witnesses in a very particular way. But what do we have? We have their testimony in written form in the Scriptures. We know their testimony, the testimony of 12 people, even more. And we have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. The Spirit of Jesus sent to us by Jesus, that is itself evidence that Christ is alive in heaven. There's a power living in us that transforms us. And that's, those two things together, that's how we give evidence. That's how we give testimony to the world about Christ. The Holy Spirit plays a huge role in all of this. I'd like you to notice how He comes up in our text twice, starting in verse 2. Luke says, after Jesus had given command, and in the Greek that's actually a single verb there, He had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. So, Luke is at pains to mention that Jesus' command, and, and that would be a reference to that single command to bear witness to the world, that this command was given through the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, actually? Well, if we go back to Luke 24, if you can just flip there a moment, you, you can see that something special was going on in Luke 24 when Jesus gave that command for them to be witnesses and proclaimers to the world, we find Jesus doing something extraordinary in uh, those disciples. He tells them all that, that all that is written in Scripture concerning Himself, in verse 44, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then, verse 45, then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. How would Jesus have opened their minds to understand the Bible, that would be the Old Testament for us, if it was not by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them? The Spirit is the Spirit of understanding. The Spirit is the one who enlightens the hearts and minds of God's people. That's why we pray before every sermon that the Lord would enlighten us or illumine our minds by His Holy Spirit so that we can understand, we can grasp it and believe it. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus is doing for His disciples uh, at the time of His resurrection. They needed to understand the Scriptures and connect all those earlier prophecies to the Lord Jesus. They need to see Jesus as the Messiah fulfilling all those promises. So, that's one thing the Holy Spirit does, but Luke mentions Him a second time. Actually, the Lord Jesus does, and Luke makes sure that we hear it, verse 4 and 5. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, you heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when you put these two references together, the Spirit was clearly already at work in these apostles, enlightening their minds, but Jesus had promised something more with respect to the Spirit. 
the Father had promised to, and the Son would be the one who sent out the very Spirit of God to do what? To live, to take up residence in the hearts of the apostles. So, not just an influence on their minds, though that was very important, but more so, He would be present in their bodies, in their hearts, 24-7, and not just present for the eleven, but for all of God's people. We we'll hope to talk more about what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit as we work toward Pentecost Sunday. But for now, notice how Jesus insists that the apostles wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to come. And then He elaborates on that in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses. So during those 40 days, the Apostles were already having their minds enlightened by the work of the Spirit so that they could grasp the Scriptures and understand all that Jesus had already come and done and taught. But now they needed power. Then they had to wait for power. Power, says Jesus, so that you can witness to me. Why would they need power? They already had enlightened minds. Why power? Because they would meet very soon with opposition. They would soon meet with a fierce hatred from the unbelieving world, and they would need to be bold as lions. They would need to lose all the fear they had before, and they would need to stand courageously before kings and emperors, even if it meant being killed. Do we also have this part of witnessing fixed firmly in our minds, beloved? Witnessing takes courage because we can expect opposition. Jesus Himself met with hatred among the Jews and later before Herod and Pilate, hatred there too. And He was clear with His disciples and with us, John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they're going to come and persecute you too. And the book of Acts shows that pattern to be true right to the end. The eleven, or actually the twelve, after Matthias is chosen, the, the twelve were thrown into prison and beaten. Stephen was soon put to death, stoned to death. The apostle James was put to death by the sword, by Herod. Paul was hounded by the Jews from the start. And the book ends with Paul in prison because of a Jewish conspiracy, waiting to have a hearing before the emperor himself. All throughout the book of Acts, there, is, there are two things. People coming to faith, yes, but there's also heavy opposition, and we need to be ready for both. As you and I live the Christian life in our neighborhoods, as we bear witness with our life of the Spirit's presence within us, that we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that to some around us it's going to be an offense, and they will despise us for it. As we speak of our love for the Lord Jesus and salvation in Him, as we introduce people to the idea that God loves sinners and calls them to repentance, some will, will find that very judgmental and hateful, and they will want no part of it. They might even have a worse reaction. But then there's the other side. 
to those that we do witness, those whom it will later appear the Father has chosen for everlasting life. That comes out of Acts 13, verse 48. All those chosen to everlasting life, they're the ones that will have their ears perked up. They're the ones that will be drawn to what you're saying. They're the ones that will ask questions and try to understand better what you're, what you're on about. They're the ones who by the power of the Spirit of Jesus will have their hearts turned. They will repent and become believers along with you and me. So, brothers and sisters, when you, when you stand back and look at our text, you see that the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, He's still at work today. He's hard at work. He's at work through His Spirit. He's at work through His people. What's He doing? He's pressing the court case of God against the hostile world while He's gathering in His people and defending them and preserving His church, teaching or witnessing or simply sharing with others what you know about Christ. It takes understanding and lightning of the mind, and it takes courage. Well, guess what? Our Lord gives us both those things through His Spirit in spades. There's no lack from His side. We just need to ask for it. And so, beloved, as we witness, as we testify to all that Christ has done, there's no need to be afraid. There's every reason to be bold as lions for the Lord. Amen.